0: Beloved, the year of our Lord, 2023, has been a blessed and exciting time for Santan Bible Church. Back in September, we had uh, what was perhaps our first of perhaps uh, a biannual creation conference and uh, Kenyan River Trip, not making any promises Hence the uh, perhaps part. Back in March, we had what might have been the first of a biannual missionary conference. And special occasions like that are good and they're valuable. They're a blessing to uh, renew and bring us again to the forefront of our thinking regarding our responsibilities, regarding God's glory in his creation. The greatest foundation, though, is just when we go through verse by verse, passage by passage, through scripture, we can't help but come to passages and verses that remind us that Christianity is a missionary faith our testimony our witness we testify the gospel with our lips and we testify the gospel with our lives and in our text this morning please open your Bibles to 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 Our passage this morning are verses 9 through 12, and in this we see two witnesses. We see the witness of our love and the witness of our work. By way of reminder, if you were here last week, you may remember that verses 1 and 2 and then the beginning of verse 3 is God disclosing his will for you and for me. The will of God is your sanctification, my sanctification. And that is laid out for us. We understand that we are all works under construction that come from a general call to sanctification. And even as we read in verse 2 of this chapter that a primary goal of our life, of our being, is to please God. And as you and I would endeavor to please God, we understand there are many currents we have to swim through to do that. We are swimming upstream against the tide of the world. Uh, But, by God's grace, we are not now what we once were. We have been given new life in Christ, and therefore we are motivated to have an accompanying new lifestyle that is commensurate, that lines up, that is flowing from the same new life that he has given us. Beloved, we must adorn the gospel with our lives as well as proclaim it with our lips. Uh, listen as I read the word of God. I'm going to read the first two verses in the beginning of verse 3. Then I'm going to jump forward to verse 9, our passage this morning. So what we have is the general call of God to sanctification at the beginning. Then Paul deals with sex, work, and death. We covered the call to sexual purity last week in the middle of verse 3 through verse 8, the Topic this morning is love and work. Love expressed in work. Hear the word of God. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally, then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, so that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, jump to verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you brethren to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need now beloved this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing please attend to it as such Now, the outline built in the text is very simple. Again, it's two witnesses. It's our witness in love in verses 9 and 10 and our witness in work in verses 11 and 12. And this comes from the reality that biblical Christianity is always eminently practical. It affects our daily life. It is a walking faith, a working faith. It is a living faith. Beloved, biblical Christianity is a crossroads where doctrine affects duty and where creed impacts conduct. And the intent here that Paul had for the original audience of Thessalonian believers that God has for you and for me is that we will adorn the gospel with our lives even as we proclaim it with our lips. So let's look at the first witness, which is our witness of love in the first two verses. Love is the crowning jewel of Christianity. Love God and love one another are stated in different words, capturing the greatest commandment, the first two greatest commandments, even from the teaching of Jesus. Love is the fulcrum upon which, even when we think of this exhortation to love and to excel still more in verses 9 and 10, love is the fulcrum upon which the sexual purity of verses 3 through 8 and the biblical work ethic functions and moves from this love here. We can also state it this way, the person who loves his brother won't defraud him or her with sexual impurity, according to verse six. So also a person who loves his brother and sister won't drain them by being a lazy sluggard. We will see in verses 11 and 12. What we have here first as we embark in our passage is a commendation of love. Paul had exhorted the Thessalonians. God exhorts us to have a love for all men, back in chapter 3, verse 12, of all men, both the saved and the unsaved. But understanding that in no way, shape, or form takes away from the special love in the family of God, the special love that we should have for the family of God. This is the love of God for his people and the love of God through his people to all men in chapter 3 verse 12 but here to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ look at how he begins in verse 9 Paul writes now as to the love of the brethren now as to the Philadelphia of the brethren that's the Greek word the brotherly love It's interesting, the word Philadelphia, it is used in all extra-biblical Greek up until this point in time. And even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Philadelphia love that is used in all the extra-biblical literature as well as the Old Testament is used exclusively in reference to blood brothers and sisters what's fascinating this is the first time where this word appears where from this point forward in the writing of the New Testament this Philadelphia love this brotherly love is used exclusively for the family of God it's used to unite Christians together in the family of God this is the family of faith not of blood We do know that God does place a high emphasis on honoring mother and father and loving brother and sister, blood brothers and sister. But the family of God is the priority. And we understand that our unifying factor is not that we come from the same background. It's not that we have the same hobbies and interests. Our unifying factor is not economical, social, and certainly not cultural. Beloved, our unifying factor is that we all come from the same place and we're all saved by the same grace. The place from which we come is a place of rebellion and transgression and sin. We were born sinners. We were born at enmity with God. So we all come from the same place. And in Christ, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, we are all saved by the same grace. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It may be true, the axiomatic statement that blood is thicker than water, but... The spirit is thicker than blood, is the biblical teaching, the biblical testimony. Paul <clears throat> continues as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Uh, Paul taught them on this topic when he was there with them in person. He taught them, they listened, they heard in the sense that they heeded, and they obeyed. That's why, as we've been going through this wonderful letter all the way up, Paul has been just outpouring thanksgiving to the Lord and joy at the report he's heard back from Timothy and his love for this young believing Thessalonian church which is a model church and an example church as well and so he commends them for their love. John Calvin said love was engraved on their hearts so that there was no need of letters to be written on paper and Paul will use the same kind of language when he moves from this topic of love and work, when he moves to the topic of death, of the end times, of the second coming of Christ, which goes all the way from chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. He'll use the same language, chapter 5, verse 1. As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So he had taught them that before and the point that he's getting at there is they have the teaching ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So as important as it is to have biblical teaching from the pulpit, of biblical ministry from women to other women, men to men, in Sunday school classes, home groups, all across the board, the greatest foundation that we have is the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us everything that we need. So Paul commends them for the love, and then he moves on from there to the ultimate foundation of their love and the ultimate foundation of all biblical love, which is simply we love because God first loved us. He continues, look at the rest of verse nine, for, the reason why, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Literally, you are God-taught, Theo didactos it's interesting the word that Paul uses here doesn't appear anywhere else in this form in any literature it appears one other location in John chapter 6 in the same uh, root uh, uh, verb in the verb form this is an adjective but this is the only appearance so it seems like Jesus in John chapter 9 coined this term maybe Paul had heard the oral tradition of what Jesus taught or maybe Paul coined this himself but what I want you to pick up here is notice Paul doesn't say you were taught by God. When you were saved, you were taught by God. He uses present tense. He says literally you are being taught by God. And what's beautiful is this is one of the fulfillments of the promise that God had given even to the nation of Israel back in Jeremiah chapter 31. Part of the new covenant promise that everyone, all, would be taught from the greatest to the, The least would be taught by God himself. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. A God there said through Jeremiah to the nation, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. God is still going to do that with the nation of Israel when Israel as a whole turns and mourns for Christ as the Messiah. And you and I are, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, we are beneficiaries of the inauguration of this promise in Christ. And here in the context, look at what he specifically says he will teach. To love one another. We are taught to love one another. We are taught to agapea. O oh, one one another. This is agape love. So here in verse 9, we have both Philadelphia love and agape love. We have others-oriented love, others-welfare-seeking love, and we have self-sacrificing love. We have Jesus-like love. And beloved, this kind of brotherly agape love. It demands mutual commitment and loyalty. It requires instruction, cultivation, and practical direction. And even though Paul said, there's no need for me to write anything else because he has laid the foundation and with the indwelling teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that is sufficient, but God piles blessings upon blessings, grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, instruction upon instruction, and he elaborates and provides this practical direction for you and for me. So we have Paul's commendation of their love. We have the foundation of love, and then he moves to their demonstration of this Philadelphia agape love. And we can understand it this way, the extent to which you and I know and love God is proven by, is demonstrated by the extent to which we know and love one another. That's why he says, look at verse 10, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. There's been a palpable demonstration of their love. And notice their love here that Paul is bringing out is not limited to one person it's not even limited to one church or even one city to all of Macedonia all of the Roman province of Macedonia So, that would mean that even in this short time period of several months, that God has moved and worked in them such that their brothers and sisters in Philippi and Berea and other cities within the Roman province of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was the capital, their love has been proven and worked out in there. So, even when we go back to the beginning, chapter 1 of this letter, not only has their faith reverberated through all of Macedonia and Achaia. Chapter 1, verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, trumpeted from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone So not only has their faith reverberated through all of Macedonia and Achaia, here their love has saturated and spread through all of Macedonia. In a word, to elaborate a little more on this kind of biblical love, this kind of Jesus-like love, this Philadelphia and agape love, this kind of love is not a mere quiver in our gut that's devoid of practical expression. This kind of biblical love has eyes and ears. It has hands and feet. If we say that we believe this, then we must live this. You see, our faith walks, your faith walks the streets. Your faith touches the earth. Your faith, my faith impacts and affects one another. Christianity stated in a warning sense, Christianity that doesn't change the way we live is not the real thing. It would be an accurate statement to say that a truly loveless Christian is a spiritless Christian. Stated, Positively, however, beloved, when you and I obey God's commandment to love, to love him first and foremost, and then as an extension to love one another, we will obey his other commandments. Not perfectly, but we will obey his other commandments. That's why Jesus taught in his uproom discourse himself to his disciples. John 14, verse 15, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that is both characteristic and that is causative. When we love God, a product of that is we will love his children. And when we love God and his children, then by God's grace and mercy with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we will obey his other commandments. Not perfectly on this side of eternity, but we will. And then finally, as Paul continues, he moves from the commendation, foundation, and demonstration, he moves to an appeal, an exhortation, a Intense urging to an acceleration and expansion of that love, Uh, like a coach motivating a team on a winning streak. Paul, Pastor Paul, encourages, exhort, and he urges. At the end of verse ten, he says, "But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more." And this exhortation to excel, to excel still more, points both backwards and forwards. It points both backwards to the love, love one another more, still more, and it points forward to his exhortation around the kind of work that is pleasing to the Lord. And I love uh, Tim Palin, the chairman of our elder board, in newcomers meetings prior to me getting into First Thessalonians in some newcomers meetings in uh, some membership classes. I've heard here he reference uh, one of my favorite stock phrases, which is to excel still more. And now how blessed and joyful I am to be in Thessalonians where I get to preach through this. Back in chapter 3, verse 12. In chapter 4, verse 1, in the opening exhortation of the will of God and call to sanctification. And now here also. <clears throat> so beloved, before we completely move from your witness in love and your witness in work, understand this. We, you and I, we need to increase our love for one another. And we need to improve our love for one another because we have not yet attained the goal, we need to increase the quantity and we need to improve the quality. And we need to understand that our vertical relationship with God won't be what it should be and could be when our horizontal relationship with one another is not what it should be. And mark this, while this is a love for all the brethren, our love for all the brethren, our brothers and sisters across the country, across the world, must begin with our love for our brothers and sisters in the local church, in Santan Bible Church. So that is the great witness of our work. And we can say that we can't say, or we could say that we shouldn't say that we love all the brothers and sisters around the world if we don't love the brothers and sisters that are sitting right next to us in the pew. And that takes us to our second witness, our witness of work. What Paul does here is he moves from the general love for the brethren to a particular application of that love, a particular expression of that brotherly love in the arena of work. And what Paul does here is he gives this practical direction in this particular expression. He tells us what this kind of brotherly love looks like and what it leads to in the arena of work. So first, what this brotherly love looks like. And what Paul does here at the beginning of verse 11 and four, is he brings out three virtues. Three specific virtues that manifest and prove and demonstrate this kind of love in order to prevent three vices. Now, what we have here to kind of put together and stage 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is graciously preventative. 2 Thessalonians is distinctly corrective. And that's because even in the newness of life that we have in Christ, we still have this body of death and the seed of every sin is in, in, the seed of every sin is in, every heart so we need the prevention and at times we need the correction so Paul gives the gentle glove of prevention in first Thessalonians and then he gives the hard rod of correction in second Thessalonians and the three virtues that he brings out here in verse 11 he says be calm be unobtrusive and be hard-working And this is to guard against, this is to warn and to prevent the three vices of being restless, of being a busybody, and being lazy. So the first virtue, Paul says, be calm. And this moral expression of brotherly love is in the arena of work. It's given in the foreground of the doctrinal instruction that he will give in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. Sex, work, and death. Sex and work, those were two creation ordinances given by God in the first two chapters of Genesis. And then the other 1,187 chapters in the Bible deal with, in some fashion or another, the subject of death. And what Paul is writing here was, apparently this was a situation where there were some Thessalonian believers that were having an unhealthy balance, and they were taking the great hope of the second coming of Christ, and they were morphing that and turning that into an unhealthy situation, what I could call the parousia hysteria. Parousia is the word translated as coming, and they were having a hysterical reaction and unhealthy fervency and out-of-whack fervency around the anticipation of the second coming. They were grotesquely distorting the great hope and promise that Jesus will come again and receive us to himself. That's why he says, look, he says, we urge you, brethren, to make it your ambition. As we jump to verse 11, we urge you, brethren, to make it your ambition, or towards the end of verse 11, I should say. Make it your ambition. Strive earnestly. Literally, strive from a love of honor. Uh, Win the respect of. Make it your ambition, what does he say? Make it your ambition, look, to lead a quiet life. And I I loved it. One commentator called this a vigorous paradox. Another commentator called this a splendid oxymoron. And literally what he's saying here is seek restlessly to be still. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. That's where the paradox, that's where the oxymoron comes in. And What he is writing this to here is to a group of believers that he's been commending all the way through. But even before he gets into his second letter, which he'll write some few months after he writes this one, in chapter 5, verse 14, we get a little bit of a picture of where Paul begins to kind of crank up the notch a little bit. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And it's quite possible that the people in the congregation that Paul has in his heart and mind here are those that are the unruly, the disorderly, undisciplined, idle, lazy. This word unruly means a sluggard. This word unruly in chapter 5 verse 14 would describe a soldier that won't obey orders or a slacker who evades responsibilities. And what he says is strive earnestly for a quiet Life And the quiet life that God is charging you and me towards does not mean noiselessness. It means a quality of life. It means a calm and content disposition. It means that we ought not have a restless preoccupation with the trivial and the distracting. It means we're not given over to hysteria and panic. It, there's an even-keeledness that's centered in biblical Christianity, it means, we could put it this way, we get excited about being quiet. Or we could even say we get agitated about not being agitated. And beloved, when we think of Jesus Christ, he is our Lord and Savior, and he is our example. And our Lord Jesus was never in a state of panic or hysteria. And therefore, we as his children, as his sons and daughters, should aspire to never be in a state of panic or hysteria. And the result will be we won't be disruptive to our brothers and sisters. So, Paul, God says to you and me, Paul says to the Thessalonians, God says to you and me, be calm. Then the second virtue is is he says, be unobtrusive. You see, a meddling spirit is the ugly twin brother of restlessness. That's why Paul says, look at the text, and attend to your own business. That's a nice idiomatic phrase in both the Greek and in the English. Mind your own business. You see, this is the same kind of sin, this kind of meddlesome spirit that Peter wrote about. In 1 Peter, 5 verse, excuse me, uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 15, when he talks about a troublesome meddler a troublesome meddler, one who does not only attend to his own business, but one who interferes in another's business. This is one who interferes in the affairs of others, one who intrudes in things that don't concern them. This is a man or a woman who's a busybody. And in fact, that's the word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. There Paul will write, We hear some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So this busybody, this one that interferes in others' affair, he or she's an eavesdropper, a troublemaker, a rat, a gossip, a scandal monger. And my favorite, this is actually a word in Webster's, a budinsky. I didn't know until this week that there's an English word, barinski, and that actually describes this kind of vice that Paul is encouraging, God is encouraging you and I to be unobtrusive to prevent and to thwart that. Spurgeon said five words cost Zacharias 40 weeks' silence. Many are sorry they spoke, but few ever mourn that they held their tongue. And then, the next verse in Second Thessalonians three, verse twelve, Paul continues there. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Beloved, <clears throat> in the family of God, we must understand that the contact—excuse the, me—the conduct of one affects the well-being of the many. That's why Paul has this great concern in his heart. And beloved, love is expressed when we learn to mind our own business. Love is manifest in quietness, a lack of nosiness and busybodiness. And we come to the third virtue. It's manifest in hardworking labor. He says, be calm, be unobtrusive, be hardworking. Now, let me say up front, with the strong language that Paul uses here, and then even stronger language in 2 Thessalonians, he is not talking about the sin that he is guarding against here is not those who want work, but generally can't find it. The sin here is they don't want to work. The issue here is not a lack of resources, it's a lack of work ethic. That's why He says, and work with your hands, at the end of verse 11, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. This, just as we commanded you, this connects us back with the opening call to sanctification in verse 2, where there Paul said, you know what commandments we gave you. They've heard this before, and he is just reaffirming what he has taught them before. And this language of working with your own hands, some 10 years plus, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he will use the same language. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, watch this, performing with his own hands what is good. And the reason why Paul makes that connection there between hard work and stealing is understand this, stealing is selfish laziness and before a man becomes a thief, he is first a sluggard. That's why Solomon there's nothing new under the sun. On the positive side in terms of grace and mercy and the blessings from the Lord and sadly on the sinful side as well. Solomon wrote Proverbs 21:25 the Desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, said, ultimately the trouble with the thief is he dislikes work. He's the sort of man who really despises honest work and labor. And to help us again connect the dots of why Paul is writing this specifically, apparently some of the Thessalonian believers were presuming upon the love and the generosity of the others. And we can think of this from a historical standpoint. Of the many different monasteries and different orders of monks and so forth, there was an order called the mendicant friars. The mendicant friars were bound by an oath of abject poverty and an ascetic way of life. Their survival was dependent upon the charity of others. And in fact, it was this way of life that gave them the name the mendicant order. Mendicant comes from the Latin word mendicare, which means to beg. And so the point here is 1 Thessalonians 4.11 drives a stake in the heart of really a monastic orders to begin with and certainly begging friars. As a positive example, we can again consider our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus was a carpenter. He worked hard as a carpenter, surely with the greatest work ethic ever before. Paul worked night and day so as not to be a burden on the church. Solomon also wrote later on, Proverbs 28, verse 19 He who works his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. And then as we would wrap this up, let me turn over and I've read you a couple of these verses already, but in Second Thessalonians three verses ten through twelve, let me read them in total, and you'll even see, we'll even see how some of the topics that he is covering here in verse eleven weave together. First excuse me, Second Thessalonians three, verse ten, Paul there says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are not leading an un- excuse me, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Beloved, this means many things. Among other things, it means that your and my 24-7 devotion to Christ does not become dereliction of our 9-to-5 duty to our employer or our 9-to-5 or even our 24-7, our 24-7 duty to our family or our 9-to-5 duty to our church. It needs to be a balance. This also means do your own job, earn your own bread, push your own wheelbarrow. Pay your own bills. Don't be a leech and live off the largest of others. Solomon wrote Proverbs 30, verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. Now, Having said that, let me circle back how I began. This does not mean that anyone at any point in time who receives the kind of charity and generosity that God does command us, and in fact, when we get to the end of verse 12, we'll see him bringing that out. That does not mean that they fall under that camp. But if one is capable of working, if there is a sin of being a sluggard or laziness, that is what he is talking about here. And in this context, there are two camps within the body. There are those who are a blessing and those who are a burden. And again, receiving something from the church as part of the beauty of the outworking of the power and blessing of the local body does not mean one is a burden. It has to do with the sin issue of an absence of a biblical work ethic. And by the way, the great challenge for those of us who do pay our own bills and even for the leadership of a church is to discern when generosity becomes enablement. And that is where each of us individually and us as a body and us as a leadership need the wisdom of Solomon. And by the way, that's one of the beautiful powers of the plurality of leadership. Um, All of the elders, for example, we all understand the entire spectrum of God's command on this. And some of us fall kind of towards the one end of the spectrum and others kind of fall towards the other end of the spectrum. And that's a beautiful thing, how we balance each other. So, beloved, That is what this brotherly love looks like in the arena of work. And then in verse 12, Paul takes us to what this brotherly love leads to in this arena of work. And that is namely your and my ministry to outsiders and our ministry to insiders. Uh, Our ministry to outsiders with a clear testimony and our ministry to insiders with personal responsibility. So, First is the ministry to outsiders, this clear testimony, and this is how we began. Christianity is a missionary faith. The world is watching and wondering. The world is listening and learning. You and I, the world, our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved coworkers, our unsaved family members are seated in the classroom of our lives. And so the question is, what are we teaching them? What are you teaching them? What am I teaching them? Look at verse 12. Paul says, so that, purpose statement, Hina, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders. Literally, so that you may walk properly toward outsiders. The same appeal to walk in a more godly fashion, to excel still more as we follow in the footsteps of, of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and Master and Rabbi, the walk, the biblical walk that we read back in chapter 4, verse 1. This even ties into what we saw in verse 11. Make it your ambition. Out of a love of honor, win the respect of. And even a little over a decade after he wrote this to the church in Thessalonica, when he writes the church in Colossae, the Apostle Paul also gives similar exhortation there. Colossians 4, 5, he says, conduct yourselves. Literally, you yourselves walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Beloved, the, in the Colossians passage, there the emphasis is more on how the gospel is expressed with the lips. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's also adorned with our lives. And when we think of where we've come from verses 3 through 8, lust does not adorn the gospel. Here in verse 11 and 12, laziness does not adorn the gospel. And in this context, if we refuse to earn our own living when we're perfectly capable of doing so, we earn the deserved contempt of the world. And the result is we discredit the faith and bring dishonor to the name of Christ. And again, the world is watching. Sloppy work does not adorn the gospel. Cutting corners does not adorn the gospel. The gospel. So, the question that you and I should ask ourselves does our daily life win the respect of our unsaved neighbors, our unsaved co workers, and our unsaved friends? Be dependable, be hardworking, be honest. God has placed you and me, you and I, God has placed you and me in a mission field right where we're at. We need to do the work of an evangelist. And watch this Proverbs. 11, verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. I didn't realize that Solomon was a Baptist. Soul winning, that's how I associate it. Or Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Beloved, God has you and me in the world, but we are to not be of the world. And we can think of a lighthouse. A lighthouse doesn't change the contours of the rocky and dangerous shore upon which it resides. But the lighthouse reveals reveals the dangers. The lighthouse encourages the faint-hearted mariner. And the lighthouse provides guidance to the safe harbor. In the same way, you and I won't and can't change the rocky contours of the dangerous shores of this perilous world, but we are used by God to reveal the dangers, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to guide men and women through the dark waters of this secular world into the safe harbors of the peace of Christ, where one's sin is forgiven, and they are brought into the family of God. This is the same thinking that Jesus had in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 16, he said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may hear your good word. No, 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 no. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, what Christ was talking about there, what Solomon and Daniel were talking about, what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 12, is the winsome conduct, the magnetic force of the spirit-empowered love that is part part and parcel of true salvation. So that's your and my ministry to the outsiders with a clear testimony. Finally, He speaks on your and my ministry to the insiders with personal responsibility. He finishes verse 12, look at the end, and not be in any need. Not be in any need. Now, the point here is not the sufficiency of our supply. The point here is that we wouldn't be a drain on our brothers and sisters. Here he's talking about being biblically financially independent. Now, when I said that, Biblical financial independence does not mean that we don't have to work. Biblical financial independence means in context that we pay our own bills, or even if before the Lord, seeking the Lord, we're not in a position to do so, that is what we aspire towards. That is the great desire that we have. And it also means, and this could be a whole separate topic, it also means that we are content with food, clothing, and shelter. I had referenced before Paul's exhortation of the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 28, after telling the thief to stop stealing and rather to work with his own hands for what is good, Paul finishes out verse 28, chapter 4, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. This is where he bring in the God-ordained, commanded, prescribed generosity. We work hard Not in order to get, we work hard in order to give. Jesus said in Luke 3.11, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. The point for hard work is not to get more of what we need less of. The point is to work hard to have more to give away. And beloved, when our heart is emancipated from idols, when the shackles fall off, when the fetters are removed, it's amazing That what falls out of our hands because of what fell out of our hearts in generosity and in ministry. How should work be viewed? Beloved, work is ordained by God. Work is not a result of the curse. Before the fall of sin, God placed man in the garden to cultivate it, to till it. There was work. Work is a good gift from a gracious, good God and part of God's original design. It's not a curse to be avoided. Work is a blessing to be embraced. Work is not a hindrance to ministry. Work is ministry in and of itself. You have your workplace, your marketplace ministry, and you have your church ministry. And in one sense, always shall the twain meet. And beloved, our work, your work is our mission field. Now, what I want to do to wrap this up, and even as kind of a segue as we move from sex and work and to death and even the end times, understand this. As I think I mentioned before, the first two topics, sex and work, are creation gifts. This topic of death is what is covered with the rest of Scripture. You and I have the great anticipation, the great hope, of, and the great promise of his second coming. We are living between two comings, and in Scripture, in the eschatological portions of Scripture, in the Olivet Discourse, and what will occupy our time in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, and then much of Second Thessalonians, we are taught how to live and how to be ready for the end. We are taught how to be watchful, faithful, and diligent. And a closing illustration that Christ himself gave that I want to Put forward to you is the parable of the virgins, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins in Matthew 25 verses 1 through 6. This is in the context of the Olivet Discourse where Christ was giving instruction around the end times. And this is what Christ taught. I'm just going to read the first six verses. Matthew 25 verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish, and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Verse 6. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then I'll stop there, but basically the foolish virgins that didn't have oil tried to appeal to the prudent wise virgins to share some of their oil, and they said, no, we can't do that, then we won't have enough. And the picture that he's given there is the wise virgins understand that you can't borrow power, you can't borrow faith, you can't borrow the Holy Spirit, we can say and understand on this slide of Pentecost. The foolish virgins have religion. They have form, but they have no care for what's inside. Their job was to provide light, but they have lamps with no oil, candles with no wicks, torches with no flames, light bulbs with no electricity. They have an outward form of religion with no internal power. And so the question for us is, we may have the lamp of profession, but do we have the oil of possession as demonstrated by how we love one another, as demonstrated by the diligence and the work ethic that we have. Beloved, God lays us out for your blessing, for your joy, for my blessing, and for my joy. May you and I, may Santan Bible Church excel still more in all of these areas for God's glory, for our joy, and for our light of a gospel testimony to a lost and dying world. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We, Lord, even as we, we said last week, we know... We thank you for the timeless truth of these ancient words. These words were written some 2,000 years ago, but Lord, as we mentioned last week, it could have been written this morning. This speaks directly to me. This speaks directly to any man or woman in Christ. Lord, help us to excel still more. Thank you for loving us so that we can love you and love one another and lord god for anyone that is here this morning or listening or watching later that is not following you alone by faith alone trusting you for their salvation let them remember let them realize let them own to what they know in their heart their sin and rebellion against you let them know that there is a way of escape let them come to you by faith alone trust alone ask for forgiveness and we praise you and we are eternally grateful Lord Jesus that you promise that anyone who comes to you and asks for forgiveness you will receive them to yourself adopt them into your family forgive them of their sins and make them a new creature where old things have passed away and new things have come and what a beautiful picture it is in our text of these new things. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord, that we pray, that we sing, and we fellowship here before we go out into this world. Amen.